by Passion Church, the DeSoto County campus, the fun church in Horn Lake, Mississippi. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church. Tonight's message is called, Love is Our Strength. And uh, more so talking, maybe more so talking about the church is responsibility to love than just us as individuals. We look at our vision statement. We're a warm, fun-loving family, eager to reach out with God's love. So what is the church eager to do? We got to, I mean, every word in there has been prayed over. We're eager to reach out with God's love. We could have said we're eager to reach out and take this community. We're eager, we could, I mean, we could have said anything. But we thought them, what God would have us say is eager to reach out with God's love. I remember when I first got saved, it wasn't long after, it was at the old Spirit of Life building, and we were visiting Bill Street quite regularly, like once a week or once a month, I can't remember exactly, but we would go out there and we would witness on Bill Street. We'd bring a big old thing full of soup and feed the homeless and and I remember one night in particular, I was so fresh and fi- on fire for Jesus. And, and I remember praying all the way out there, God, it was just me in the car that night. And I said, let me see the people. Just give me your eyes and let me see the people that I minister to tonight. Let me, let me experience how you see people. I don't know what to pray, but some, I remember it was something really close along those lines. I just wanted to have his eyes that night. And I don't know what happened, but sometimes... God answers in a big way. Do you know what I'm talking about? Especially if your prayer lines up with his heart. And I got there, and, and I could just tell right away something was different. And I, and I was ministering to people, and I would see people. I would, I would see them not just as, an, you know, a person, but I, I could almost like see their hurts and their wounds and stuff. It was really amazing. I ended up giving my leather jacket to some homeless guy that night. I mean, the love of God was just it had overtaken me. It was almost supernatural because I didn't have that, you know, but I could feel that God was answering that prayer, and he was letting me see people, and he was letting me love people. And we went out on the streets, and, and uh, I, I ended up praying with a whole bunch of people, and uh, there was one guy in particular. He come walking up, and he was real disheveled. It looked like he had slept in his clothes for three weeks, and I'm, and I'm sure he did. Uh, his hair was messed, and, and hair growing out of nose, and ears and I mean and and he had uh urinated on himself he was homeless and he was I don't know he was holding on is all I could say and he was sitting on this bench and I walked (coughs) I walked up to him and I began to share the gospel with him the good news and he was really amazed that I was talking to him in the first place I could tell and he received Jesus sitting there on that bench that night and I don't know, but the love was all over me, and I, and I reached over, and I just hugged him after he gave his heart to Jesus, you know, and he didn't smell good, <laughs> and, and uh, but I remember when I let go, he was just looking at me like, what did you do to me? He kept saying, what did you do to me? And he got up, and he was walking around, and he kept saying, what did you do to me? And I said, I didn't do anything. 
And I didn't, I didn't know what he was talking about. But I said, well, I, I'm, I'm going to go, you know. And he followed me around like a little puppy on Bill Street that night. He, he was telling everybody, this man touched me. This man touched me. And it was like it was something supernatural. I don't know what it was. Well, I ended up ministering to a, another lady on the street. She gave her heart to Jesus right there on Bill Street. And her boyfriend come walking up out of one of the nightclubs or something. And I was ministering to him. And I shook his hand. And when he did, he said, whoo, this is a man of God. And he started right, going down the street saying, that's a man of God. That's a man of God. I'm not kidding. And I was like, I, th I thought he was making fun of me. You know how they do. Because they, he's witnessing. I'm going to make, make him look like a jerk. So I thought he was just making fun of me. But he wasn't. He, he kept coming up saying, he was telling people, this, this is a man of God. He touched me. He was saying I touched him. I couldn't believe it. Before the night was over, I had like a pack of people following me around. And, and I talked to this one homeless guy. Had like a chunk missing out of his arm. Looked like he'd been bit by a, sh a shark or something. He said somebody had stabbed him or something out there on the streets. They live rough out there, guys. Somebody had stabbed him. And he had let it get infected, and he went to the doctor, and they had to clean the wound out, and they had to cut half, you know, part of his arm out. But, of course, they had bandaged it, but he had been out there on the streets living in the rain or whatever, and it was just open. And you could see down to the bone in his arm. And uh, I was trying to minister to him, talking to him, and the police came up and wanted to haul him off. And he was trying to tell them, look, I'm with this guy. He was trying to associate with me so they wouldn't haul him off. And... Uh, Guess what I did? I'll tell you later. <laughs> but uh, then this Sunday, Sunday night, Tom knows what I'm talking about. Uh, Cedric knows what I'm talking about. We go to the jail. Uh, Tom and Cedric went to this one pod. They had, you know, pretty good crowd there, I guess, for a Sunday night. We went to the other crowd. We only had four guys, which is a, a slight night. And I knew three of them were already born again because they had already been in our services before and gave their heart to Jesus. But there's this one guy there. I, I want to say he's a, that I could call him a homosexual. Would you call him a homosexual? I mean, uh, I don't know for sure he's a homosexual. He didn't tell me he's a homosexual, but, but, he, but he looks so much like a girl. I mean, you would think he's a girl if you didn't know. And uh, he's, he's got his hair in a ponytail and everything. And I'm pretty sure he's a homosexual. Well, we had ministered to this guy for a couple of years now, Tom, hadn't we? He's been in the jail for m many years. And we've, we have spoken so many gospel messages over the man. And, uh, and every time you get to the altar call, you know, sometimes you ask him, are you saved? Raise your hand. He, he never raises his hand, so we know he's not saved. Well, then when you ask him, does he want to be saved, and the Holy Spirit will be moving, other guys will be giving their heart to Jesus, he never responds. And uh, he's just one of those hard cases. Well, anyway, that happened again this Sunday night. Uh, gave a good gospel message. Found out, you know, made sure the other three were saved. He didn't raise his hand. Get uh, an altar call, asked him to give his heart to Jesus, and he was going to refuse to do it again. And the love of God came I believe, on to me and showed me that man sitting there and, uh, and began to minister through me. I, believe, I began to picture why he would not give his heart to Jesus because he believed that, first of all, he couldn't beat what he was facing. He thought if he were to give his heart to Jesus, it wouldn't matter because he was still going to be a homosexual. 
He couldn't change the way he is. So he, th he saw himself as unworthy or that it wouldn't make any difference to give his heart to Jesus. So as I began to, to pull and to minister, I, the Lord was giving me words <coughs> about the cross and how it's not based on us and that we don't have to clean ourselves up before we give our heart to Jesus. You know, we just have to trust in the cross. If you're trusting that you'll be able to do it, then you're trusting in yourself, and that's the exact opposite of the gospel message. The gospel message is that you're trusting in the cross, that you realize you can't do it. And so I began to minister along those lines, and I saw that hand go up. And he stood up in front of those other three guys, and uh, with tears in his eyes, streaming down his cheeks, he gave his heart to Jesus. And we were so excited about that. Sometimes we have a service where there's, you know, 15 or 20 or more. We've had it 30 at, in, in the old days when we'd have a big crowd. We'd give their heart to Jesus, and we'd be excited about that. But, there, you know, we were really excited to see that, that guy that we've been ministering to for so long uh, give his heart to Jesus. And there's more I want to tell you about that, but I'll wait till later. Let's go to Luke 23. Luke 23, verse 13. We're going to start here with Pilate. Pilate being the governor. Jesus is arrested. He's already met with Pilate. In verse 13 it says, Then Pilate called together the leading priest and the other religious leaders along with the people, and he announced his verdict. So the verdict is in. You know, usually, I don't know what kind of justice system they're, they're working with here, but usually when the verdict is in, it's a kind of a settled deal, right? They're not going to change the verdict. He says, you brought me this man, accusing him of leading a revolt, talking about Jesus. I have examined him thoroughly on this point in your presence and find him innocent. So what's the verdict? He's innocent. Herod came to the same conclusion and sent him back to us. Nothing this man do has done calls for the death penalty. Because Jesus wasn't a zealot leading some kind of violent revolt. Pilate and Herod had been right. Jesus was innocent. In John 8, 46, he, he asked his detractors, which one of you can truly accuse me of sin? And they, they couldn't. They could lie on him, but they couldn't even get their story straight. Jesus was certainly a revolutionary. But his, he was a revolutionary, only armed with the truth of God and, a, and a, the love of God. He didn't come with weapons. In verse 16, Pilate says, So I, have, I will have him flogged, and then I will release him. <coughs> Once again, I, you know, our justice system might not be the best, but when the verdict is innocent, and then you still have him flogged, that could be a problem with your justice system. In verse 18, it says, Then a mighty roar rose from the crowd, and with one voice they shouted, Kill him! And release Barabbas to us. So the crowd gets in an uproar. Apparently there's a lot of them. It's a mighty roar. And they're saying, release Barabbas. Uh, it was custom in those days. For some reason, the, the Romans who were, you know, had the Roman Empire and the Jews were just part of it. Uh, they would release to the Jews one prisoner a year, whoever they decided on. And Pilate had told them, you know, I'll release to you a prisoner. And... Uh, 
They said, release to us, to us Barabbas. It says Barabbas was in prison for taking part in an insurrection in Jerusalem against the government and for murder. So this guy's a murderer. This guy is somebody who takes up a sword or takes up staves or whatever to fight against the government. And it's interesting as I begin to research this, Barabbas, the name Barabbas means son of the father. And interestingly enough, if you look back at the ancient text, uh, it says his first name was Jesus, Jesus Barabbas. And th they said that, that many of the translators took that out because they didn't, they didn't want to associate him with Jesus that we know. That they, they, they thought it was a bad thing. But really, what you have here is you have two Jesuses, both sons of the Father. But it may be different fathers, I don't know. But two Jesuses, both sons of the Father. So which Jesus do you want? That's what we're going to discuss here tonight. A, a Jesus that in, intends to overcome with violence, which was Jesus Barabbas, or a Jesus who intends to overcome with love, which I think is the Jesus I serve. Anyway, in verse 20, Pilate argued with them because he wanted to release Jesus. Well, I imagine he'd already... <laughs> Declared him innocent, but, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And for the third time he demanded, why, what crime has he committed? I found no reason to sentence him to death. So I will have him flogged and then I will release him. But the mob shouted louder and louder, demanding that Jesus be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So much for Roman justice, huh? So Pilate, he sentenced Jesus to die as they demanded and they had, and as they had requested, he released Barabbas, the man in prison for insurrection and murder. But he turned Jesus over to them to do as they wished. What is your choice today? How do you think uh, the church of Jesus should prevail? I mean, do you think we should take a stance of love? or a stance of violence to get our means across? Should we be zealots, or should we be suffering servants? I think that's an important question because today we're being provoked in all manner on, on every news station and everywhere we go. Uh, and there's, it's nothing new. I mean, we may have media and technology that they didn't have back in those days, but it's always been like that. You're going to be provoked. You're going to be hated because you're a believer, you're going to be put in positions. And our natural man leans towards, when you get angry, you want to get violent. When you, when you get put in a corner, you want to fight back. And, the, and sometimes, uh, even back in Jesus' day, they thought that was the way. They, they were waiting for Jesus to come in riding on a white horse and to conquer. And his own disciples, they struggled in this regard, of understanding what Jesus' plans were. And I think we still do to some regard because we have, we have a host of Christians approaching how we change our nation in a host of different ways. They're coming at it from all different perspectives. And so that's uh, why I'm talking tonight. Let's turn to Luke 9, 46. Just go back a little bit. Chapter 9, 
verse 46. Jesus walking down the road with them knucklehead disciples. His disciples began arguing about which one of them was the greatest. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But Jesus knew their thoughts, so he brought a little child to his side. Then he said to them, Anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me also welcomes my Father who sent me. Whoever is least among you is the greatest. So he puts out that fire. You know, they're, they're being ignorant. He's saying, look, you guys are coming at this wrong. We're not trying to see who's the greatest. And verse 49 says, John said to Jesus, Master, we saw someone using your name to cast out devils, but we told him to stop because he isn't in our group. Fire number two. <laughs> but Jesus said, don't stop him. Anyone who is not against you is for you. So he tries to put that fire out. As the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead to the Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. More knuckleheads. Do you not remember that he had witnessed to the woman at the well in Samaria, and they had gone and brought people out, and that he had ministered to the town, and many people in Samaria had uh, come to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, and they were all, you know, I'm sure they would have welcomed him, but they found out that Jesus was going to go through there to Jerusalem to be with the Jews. And the Jews had no dealing with the Samaritans, so they got their feelings hurt. Now they won't let Jesus in Samaria. Oh, my goodness. How, now do you begin to picture why Jesus says, how long must I suffer with you? <laughs> when now it gets worse. When James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven and burn them up? <laughs> this, is, this gets worse and worse. But Jesus turned and he rebuked them. He put out fire number four or five. I can't remember where we're at at this point. So they just went to another village. Listen, just go to another village sometimes. Shake the dust off your feet and go to the next one. I learned that from Brother Tom. I used to get so upset if people wouldn't receive the gospel when we knocked on the door. And Tom would be, okay, let's go. And I'd be, come on, Tom, let's stop and pray for them. And he, he's like, we got other people to see. You got to move on. If it ain't their time, it ain't their time. And if people are being mean to you and for the gospel's sake, you know, don't call down fire from heaven. Just move on. You can pray for them on the way. Jesus didn't come to destroy sinners. He came to save them. And so if a sinner acts like a sinner around you and makes you mad, don't let him make you a sinner. Overcome evil with good. Overcome darkness with light. And of course, I believe, I've preached this here recently, I believe that's why Judas betrayed Jesus because he was expecting Jesus to come with a sword. He was expecting to put an army together that was going to overthrow the Romans. And it didn't happen, and so I think that's a big part of the reason why he lost confidence in the Lord and that he ended up betraying him for 30 pieces of silver. If we'll turn to Matthew 26, 49. A couple books back. Matthew 26, 49. We pick it up after Jesus had just finished praying in the garden with those knuckleheads who fell asleep on him three times. <laughs> And, and as we make fun 
of other believers, we ought also to examine ourselves. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Y'all have heard some of my stories. And we could go on and on. Matthew 26, 49. So Judas came straight to Jesus. Greetings, Rabbi, he exclaimed and gave him a kiss. Jesus said, my friend, go ahead and do what you have come for. Then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. <coughs> but one of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword, and we know that was Peter from another gospel, and struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. Put away your sword, Jesus told him. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us, and he would send them instantly? But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that <laughs> describe what's, what must happen now? He's just, he's a, Jesus is a fireman. I mean, he is putting out fires left and right. Then Jesus said to the crowd, so he, he's, got, he's got people doing wrong on his side. He's got people doing wrong on the outside. He said, am I some dangerous revolutionary that you come to me with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there teaching every day. But all this happened to fulfill the words of the prophecies as recorded in the scriptures. At that point, all the disciples deserted him and fled. Way to go, guys. <laughs> He's given up, and his disciples take off running. I mean, it, it seemed like it was easier for Peter to pull out a sword and fight than it was to give up and submit to God's will, doesn't it? I'm just telling you. We have to be careful to watch the things that trigger us to back into thinking the way we used to think before we got saved, before we recognized the love of God and had it shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Ghost. Because, see, Jesus was here to demonstrate to us the power of love. Because we forget and we think the only power is in the sword or, the, or, or in the sword of our tongue, you know, tearing somebody up or the sword of our keyboard as we write some evil blog over somebody or speak Say something nasty on their side or something. But Matthew 5, 44, Jesus says, But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And that way you'll be acting like true children of the Father in heaven. For he gives sunlight to both the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. You know, God isn't looking down here and uh, saying, Oh, that's rotten, no good, I hate them, I, I like them. He, he's not picking out favorites. He's seeing us all the way we could be if we were to give our heart to Jesus and let love mold us and shape us. He's not willing that any should perish. He's, he's not taking pleasure in the death of the wicked. He just wants us to turn from that wickedness. Let the light shine. Let the love rise up and change you into something that he created you to be. I've noticed that you can't argue somebody into the kingdom of heaven. You know why? Because when you get to arguing with them, you know, the hair on the back of their neck stands up and they get defensive and they're not listening to what you say. They're just ready to say their next statement and to argue with you. And there's, it's almost impossible for the Holy Spirit to deal with a person in that condition. So if you're ever out witnessing and, and somebody's being rude, don't be rude back. You're better just to say, okay, well, we'll speak more about it later. I'll see you and walk off. Don't, 
is, is no sense in arguing with people. Now, if you're having a spirited conversation with somebody who wants to discuss, you know, religion, I, I, I've studied much of the Bible myself personally because I want to know what I believe. I want to be able to answer somebody if they have a question. And I think about things from all kind of angles. And, and if I wanted to, I could probably, you know, talk down just about anybody I wanted to at knocking on doors trying to witness. I could probably make them feel silly about their position if I wanted to. But what good does that do? None. You can't argue anybody into the kingdom of heaven. Romans 2, 4 tells us how to do it. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? In the King James, it says, The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. It's the goodness of God. When we remember how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient he's been with us, we need to show that, that tolerance, that kindness, and that patience with other people. Just because you've arrived, just because you have a little knowledge, just because now you have the Spirit of God, you know, if it weren't for God, where would you be? In the same shoes. So you, you just extend that kindness, and believe me, it makes a difference. What, what, you remember Saul, when he was a Pharisee, before he became the apostle Paul? Man, he was breathing out threatenings, and he was having Christians thrown into jail, and some probably worse. What must he have thought when Stephen was being stoned, and, and all the people stoning him had thrown their coats at, at Saul's feet for him to watch? And then he witnessed and it says in Acts 7, 59, as they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Almost the same words Jesus had spoken. Lord, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Lord, don't lay this sin at their charge. As they're pounding him with boulders and rocks and smashing his head in, his jaw broke, his nose bloody, Collarbone broke. Oh, in the stomach. He's taking shots. He's going down. Lord, I commit my life into your hands. And falls to his knees and says, Father, forgive them. I mean, we all take shots. I'm not saying there's not a time to fight. Because y'all know me, I said something last week about sissy Christians. You know, I'm not, I'm not a sissy Christian. I don't believe in it. I don't believe that we don't protect ourselves. I'm not saying we don't punish wrongdoers. I think that's why God gave us government and authorities to punish wrongdoers. He gave us an army, a military, to hold back evil aggression against our state. He's put things in position. And I, and I think if you're in the army and you're fighting against an enemy, then I don't think it's murder for you to kill someone. I think that's your... That's what you do. That's what you're we're assigned to do. And I think God okays that. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying there's not a time to fight. I'm not saying that if somebody breaks in your house, you shouldn't protect your loved ones. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying that's not the way the kingdom of God advances. You don't, in, you don't bring somebody into the kingdom of God through weaponry, whether it be your tongue or whether it be a 45, you know. You're coming to God today, and I don't care what you say. 
First John. <coughs> you know what John 3.16 says? First John 3.16 says, We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So ought we also to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. I'm not telling you that, that you should let anybody take your life from you. Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. But he gave it up. He laid it down. And I'm not saying that you should do that, that you should literally lay your life down for someone else unless God speaks to you to tell you to do that. But you could lay a piece of it down. You could lay your pride down for a moment. You could lay your anger down when, when you feel your collar starting to heat up. You could revert back to how would Jesus handle this? I wrote this. Well, let's not get there yet. How did the early church grow? In the face of severe persecution. You know, those Romans were pretty tough on the Christians. But they continued to spread the good news, and that's how the church grew. In the face of much persecution, John 12, 32, Jesus said, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I'll draw everyone to myself. That's how people are drawn. When they see the goodness of God, it leads them to repentance. And so we go about, how beautiful are the feet of those who go about preaching the good news? How will they know unless somebody preaches it to them? How can, when somebody tells them, we go and tell them the good news, even if we're persecuted for it. And when they see Jesus, that's what I did that day, or last Sunday. God showed me, show, show him me on that cross when I was witnessing to that young man or doing the altar call. I just began to show him Jesus on the cross and his love. If, if they can see a picture of Jesus on that cross and the goodness that it took for God himself to be born into this crazy world and to live a sinless life that he may die in our place. If they could see what it took, the agony that he suffered, see him lifted up, then it'll draw all people to him. We need to know about the cross as Christians. We need to be so intimate with the cross. We need to know every detail. We need to read the Gospels. All four Gospels accounts of the cross. We need to see Jesus. We need to know why he was there. We need to know what he was doing, what he was thinking, what he said from the cross. We often, we've preached series on all of this. Because the cross is where we must stay at. We must never leave the cross and preach a different message. In one place, Paul says, I preached Christ and him crucified. You know, if, and that's all I'll preach if that, that be it. That's the most important thing. We can't leave the cross. Because if, they, if we begin to preach a message about their welfare, how they can be a better person, how, and it'll be about all about them, it's not going to draw them to repentance. It's going to make them false converts who are going after the wrong thing, and it's still going to be about them, and it won't be about the cross. And if it's not about the cross, it won't be salvation. Because there's only one way. It's through the cross. Jesus, he sent out his disciples one time to go witness. And he was telling them, this time, you know, take your, your sword and your, 
your money or whatever. And they said, Jesus, we got two swords. And he said, it is enough. And I think maybe them swords were two things. The love found in the gospel and the love found in the one preaching the gospel. When Jesus tells you to take your sword, it's the good news. It's, it's take, your, take the good news and preach it like someone who's experienced it, someone who loves them the way Jesus did. Paul would later say in Colossians 1.24, this is the same Paul that was there for Stephen being stoned. Now he's saying, I'm glad when I suffer in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. He's glad when he suffers in his body. He's willing. Man, whatever it takes, Paul was there. He got to be let down in a basket outside the window. He was stoned and left for dead and got up and went back in the city and went back out preaching the next day. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten with rods. He would, I mean, the things that he would endure. But he said, woe unto me if I don't preach the gospel. Woe unto me. It's what he lived for, to share the love that he had found in his Savior Jesus. The early church grew under severe, severe persecution. The Roman government was pretty tough on them. It says the second century theologian, Tertullian, I guess that's how you say it, Tertullian, had converted to Christianity based in part on his wonder at Christians' faithfulness in the face of martyrdom as it had clearly had a similar effect on others as well. In other words, they were feeding Christians to the lions. They were boiling them in oil. They were burning them at the stake, whatever they were doing back there in the Roman. Uh, and he had witnessed them, but he had witnessed their faithfulness in the face of this, and it had caused him to himself become a Christian. It was Tertullian who famously declared, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Indeed, persecution seemed to have had a dramatic effect on Christianity's numbers, but not in the direction intended by the persecutors. The persecutors intended to, to persecute them and make them all run for the hills. But the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. The more you killed, the more they multiplied. The more they were st stood faithful in the, in the face of the lions, would not deny Christ, it caused other people to say, that's got to be the most fantastic love. I mean, I, I can't imagine doing that. And when they saw the blood of the martyrs and they saw the faithfulness, it's changed Tertullian and it changed so many people that the Roman government finally said, you know what, if we can't beat them, we might as well join them. <laughs> the Roman emperor Constantine established himself as the head of the church around 313 A.D., which made this new Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? They tried to stomp out the Christians. They tried to burn them up. They tried to get rid of them. And they realized that they couldn't, 
And Christianity was growing at such a rate because of the faithfulness of the martyrs, the faithfulness of the Christians, the love. that They weren't, they weren't overthrown. They didn't have any weapons. They weren't fighting a physical war. They were winning with the love of God. And the Roman Empire finally said, hey, we got to join this. So the, the Roman emperor, Constantine, names himself a Christian and says he's the head of the church. <laughs> wow, what a great day for Christianity. Now they have all the money and the resources and the political clout they had ever. Christianity wins, man. No more persecution. They got worldwide acceptance. I mean, this was the Roman Empire, and they were Christians now. And so the whole world was like, oh, it's okay to be a Christian. So it opened up the door for Christianity everywhere. Man, it was just wonderful. What? No. You would think, you would think that a political victory like that would be just what the church needed. But it was exactly the opposite effect. Now you had politicians in charge of the church. The church had become soft, compromised, and it lost any resemblance to the church that Jesus had died for. Now they were compromised. They had... They had people coming from everywhere to be Christians because it was the end thing to do. But they weren't Christians at all. They just claimed to be because it was the hip thing to do. And in comparison, we see America today. Much of Christianity is relegated to the ineffectiveness of a snobbish social club. Because it's the end thing to be a Christian, or at least for a long time it was. And so we had so many people just, hey, I go to church, I clock in, I'm a good upstanding citizen, I'm doing what everybody else in America is doing, but had no real relationship, certainly weren't re ready to sacrifice anything for, for Jesus, had no real love for him, and, it, and it's that way in America. So many people claim to be Christians, but how many do you really think have know him? And walk in his love. American Christians. Our, our strength as Christians doesn't rely or our invalid, how you say it, evangelical voting block. You know, they've given us our own voting block. They say, oh, well, we've got to get the evangelicals voting this way. And both parties are, you know, trying to woo us to their side. And, and so we have power in the government because, you know, we kind of believe alike. But, of course, you see, that doesn't work. <laughs> You've got just as many Christians on one side of the aisle as you do the other, even though they're polar opposites, so... That tells you something right there that so-called Christians aren't, don't have it all together. Our might is not in our numbers. It's certainly not in our gratuitous display of superior morals. How has that worked to win the world when we go around telling everybody how righteous we are and you need to be like us? You need to turn or burn, you know. You're not like us, you know. It's not in our influence. It's not our catchy Facebook post. 
It's not in the lofty buildings that we've created with the, the warm lighting and the contemporary music. You know, it's not in uh, our book sales, our box office successes with the you know, new Christian movies. Man, we're winning, we're winning the nation now. We've got, it, we've, we've got Hollywood on board with us. Wow. It's not in the, you know, one or two celebrities that come out as a Christian every year that we hope are going to be. It's not going to be, you know, a president or because our governor is a Christian. It's going to change this nation. It's certainly not our cliquish ways and our Christianese that we speak. Nope. It's not even, it's not even the fancy preaching. I'll tell you where our influence is found. It's whenever we get outside of ourselves and spread the love of God. We go to old Brian Park or the nursing homes, the homeless shelters, troubled youth centers, maybe even on Beale Street. It's when we love people when they come through these doors. We make them feel at home, make them feel like, I don't know, you know, I don't know where you've been, brother, sister. I don't know what you're going through. It looks like, you, you, you know, You've, you've been through something. Can, can I be? Can I take you to lunch? Can I? Can I? Uh, can you come to our women's meeting or men's meeting? Or hey, we'd like to. We'd like you to come back. You know, we'd like to get to know you. We care about you. You know, we don't care about where you've been. We just care about you. We care about where you're going. <coughs> anyway, on Bill Street that night. That guy was trying to say, hey, I'm with him, I'm with him, so they wouldn't take him, you know, downtown. And the police officer came to me and said, have you seen his arm? I said, yeah. He said, he really needs to, he needs to be put in jail so they can look at that and take care of that. And I, and I said, guess what I said? I don't know the man. <laughs> take him, take him. Why? It sounds, he was probably mad at me, you know. But what was best for the man? And another thing, Sunday night, when I was standing face to face with this homosexual and he just gave his heart to Jesus, I don't know why, I stepped forward and I gave him a big hug and I held on to him for a minute. Now he was stiff, boy, he was like, didn't know how to respond to that. I left, you know, after they took him out and, me and Daniel was with me, he can vouch. And uh, when I was driving home, I was thinking, Lord, did I just really hug a homosexual like that? <laughs> I hope he didn't think the wrong thing, you know. I don't know. I don't know. I said, but Lord, I just felt like it was the right thing to do. And I felt like God was saying it was. It might have been the only man hug him in the right way his whole life. <laughs> it might be big part of the reason why he is like he is because no man ever stepped up and gave him a, a godly hug and so I think I did the right thing I don't, I don't think you can hug somebody and do the wrong thing well and I take that back I have seen some inappropriate hugs in church while we're on the subject guys appropriate hug for a woman may be a side hug okay don't want to get off in there. But anyway, it's still about Jesus being high and lifted up, isn't it? 
It's got to be. It's the only way we're going to grow this church. Any church is ever going to, well, I take that back. You can grow a crowd, but you're not going to grow any disciples like that. Fancy preaching and, and all the bells and whistles are, may grow a crowd, but it's only the love of God that's going to grow disciples. It's going to make disciples out of people. So fight for righteousness, yes, stand unified, vote. Do all the things that Christians, you know, typically do or whatever. But just make sure you do it with love. Don't do it out of the wrong motives. Do everything you do with love. 1 Corinthians sums it up. Chapter 13. You've heard it a million times. Verse 1. If I could speak all the languages of the earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, if I had faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I had to the poor and sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained Nothing. Without love, we have nothing. Without love, we are nothing. We are what we are because of his love. If we don't share it, then we're doing nothing. The natural man will always choose the side of Barabbas. But the spiritual man who knows Jesus will always follow after love. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it and that it inspires you to live out God's Word. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church.